Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right. Go ahead and move back to your seats. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Good to see you. Uh, We're continuing in this series, A Generous Common Life. Uh, But I wanted to begin with a confession. And no, I have not uh, run away with literally hundreds of dollars from City Beautiful Church's bank account because Jeff won't give me the password. What's the point of hiring a finance person if they're going to help you embezzle, you know what I mean? Um, So, you know, this series we've been talking about, that strange interplay between what is ours uh, to hold, like what's our burden, and what's the burden that we carry together. And um, we've been talking about how difficult it is sometimes to discern what is mine to hold and what is my responsibility to other people. Uh, And a couple weeks ago, I actually just kind of offhanded gave this uh, little story about a friend of mine. Um, kind of, we always kind of compared dating notes and we were talking about some of these things. And I told the story in kind of an offhanded way. I wasn't really thinking about it, uh, you know, just as an example of like, even in romantic relationships, understanding what's yours and what's somebody else's. Um, and that we have a tendency to either be underboundaried or overboundaried or whatever. Uh, and a couple weeks ago, she sent me a very long text message just excoriating me for the way that I had told the story. Because a couple things, well, yeah, it's funny, but it wasn't funny in the moment, you know? Um, number one, um, she said, I, I, I tend to think of this as, like, when we're sharing this stuff, we're coming into it as equals, and the way that you told the story positioned yourself as the expert, and that I'm, and she's like, and it's honestly rather, rather misogynistic that you kind of posit, like, you're the person that has the answers, and that I'm such a mess and in need of rescuing. Um, and she said, and secondly, I think you need to pay more attention to the, uh, the platform that you've been given and how you're stewarding that. And it, it, set me, it set me back on my heels, honestly. I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, and I did maybe what many of you would do. I kind of automatically started running through all my coping mechanisms, which was, number one, uh, never respond to this person ever again and just cut them out of my life. <laughs> Anybody else? Um, number two, develop all the really great arguments to defend what I had said. Right? Like to say, well, I was just joking or it's whatever, you know? And I felt this strong conviction. It was kind of in the evening that I had got to sit down with this text because I was hanging out with Landon and I was coming home and I found this thing. And I had to just sit there with it. And it was interesting because I felt like in that, in that point, and still I think the Lord's kind of convicted me of how I have this tendency to tell stories where I kind of come out as the hero uh, rather than a participant or whatever it might be. So that was already on my plate, and then for someone to point that out to me, it was just like, ah, okay, there it is. There's the shadow side that I still have to contend with. Um, so rather than trying to defend myself or ignore this person or tell them that they're blowing something out of proportion, I had to say, you know, you are absolutely right. Like, I have messed up, um, and I apologize. And I, you know... That, that was really, really humbling to do. But I think a big part of what we're talking about in this series is confronting our shadow sides, that, that part of us where our ego takes over and we're not necessarily kind of embodying the spirit of Christ, but instead we're kind of indulging in the flesh, whatever that looks like in various 
and sundry ways. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to confess that. You know, I, I remember reading uh, Maimonides, who's a really fantastic Jewish philosopher from the 5th century, is talking about confession forgiveness. He said, like, a confession of a sin should always be equal to the platform in which it was performed. So if it's a one-on-one um, attrition, it should be a one-on-one confession. But this was, a, this was a public attrition of mine, so I wanted to make a public confession to that uh, and commit to you. I'm going to try to do better to not always come out as the hero of the story or the expert, because we all know that I'm a big know-it-all, and I like to pretend like I have all the answers, which I don't. <clears throat> so um, we're going to continue on, and, I, and hopefully this like plays out some ways in the, in the sermon that I'm going to be preaching today. We've been in this series kind of uh, obsessively centering on Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Um, I told a, uh, another pastor friend that we were doing three months on 10 verses. She's like, how does that work? I'm like, well, it, we don't just do those verses. We kind of use that as a springboard. And that's what we've been doing each week, is taking this really beautiful, dense passage of Paul, um, allowing it to kind of center the conversation, and then seeing where it might take us. So today I'm going to be reading out of the Passion Translation. And I don't know if you guys keep up with the latest controversy in biblical translations, um, like I do, because it's some juicy goss. Um, The Passion Translation is is a modern translation. You know, we've talked about before, there's kind of like accuracy to the original biblical languages on one end, and then there's like uh, readability on the other. So the message would tend to be over here in readability, whereas maybe like the Amplified Bible, uh, maybe the ESV, some others, they would be a bit more here in terms of like trying to be as accurate as possible the original languages. So the passion is uh, in favor of readability, and it's uh, the, the intent of the translation is really to try to convey God's heart and God's tone in scriptures where maybe sometimes it isn't always evident, and that's the little bit of controversy, but I rather like it in the same way that I like the message. I think it helps uh, to come alive to the scriptures, and uh, you know, we have these other scriptures to, when we're really trying to do the, the accurate thing, but when we need the feeling or the tone, I think this is a good option. So this is um, Galatians 6, 1 through 10 in the Passion Translation. My beloved friends... If you see a believer who's overtaken with a fault, the one who is in the spirit should seek to restore him in the spirit of gentleness. But keep watch over your own heart so that you won't be tempted to exalt yourself over him. Love empowers us to fulfill the law of the anointed one as we carry each other's troubles. If you think you're somebody too important to stoop down to help another when really you are not, you're living in deception. Let everyone be devoted to fulfill the work God has given them to do with excellence, and their joy will be in doing what's right and being themselves and not in being affirmed by others. Every believer is ultimately responsible for his or her own conscience. And those who are taught the word must share all good things with their teacher. God will never be mocked, for what you plant will always be the very thing you harvest. The harvest you reap reveals the seed that you planted. If you plant the corrupt seeds of self-life into this natural realm, you can expect a harvest of corruption. If you plant the good seeds of spirit life, you will reap beautiful fruits that grow from the everlasting life of the spirit. And don't allow yourselves to be weary in planting good seeds, for the season of reaping the wonderful harvest you've planted is coming. Take advantage of every opportunity to be a blessing to others, especially to our brothers and sisters 
in the family of faith. So Heavenly Father, I pray as we're continuing in this journey that you would be speaking to each one of us, that the word would become a living word that breathes life into our spirits, that helps us to recenter on the truth of who you are um, and to come more home to who we are because of your love. Holy Spirit, Spirit, bring comfort and bring challenge. That we would be open and honest before you. Even as David says in the Psalms, like, show us our hearts, reveal to us our anxieties, not as a way to shame us, but as a way to help bring us more into the light so you can continue the salvific work that you began through Jesus on the cross. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So um, I, I like in this translation, there's a couple of phrases that I think are pretty interesting, but one of them is being in the spirit uh, and being, uh, you know, um, and following the law of the anointed one, being Christ's law, the, the law of love. Um, I had a friend over in Tampa when he was raising his boys, and again, maybe this is an oversimplification, but they talk about, um, are you living out of the flesh or living out of the spirit? So whenever the boys would do something, and he'd be like, okay, so was that out of the flesh or was that out of the spirit? And they're like, that was out of the flesh, Dad. And then apparently they're driving one day, and um, he got cut off, and he said some you know, colorful language, and one of the boys in the back goes, Dad, was that out of the flesh or was that out of the spirit? He's like, aha, I've taught them well. Maybe a little too well. Um, but being in the Spirit, what we're trying to do is to make what's truest of us on the deepest part of ourselves, that we are in Christ. Like, that's not something we earn. It is a gift that we received. But the surface part of who we are doesn't always reflect that. And I kind of think that's what Paul's talking about in another letter when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, take this truest, deepest thing about you and manifest it on the outside through training, through developing the virtue necessary to see the reality of the Spirit of Jesus manifest in the way that you think, uh, in the way that you feel, and the way that you act. These things flow from us being patterned after Jesus. And so we, have, we are attentive to Jesus to see this is what God is truly like, but we're attentive to Jesus also to say this is what it looks like to be a complete and whole and free human being. And the question that I want to answer today in this kind of this spirit of carrying one another's burdens, carrying each other's loads, is how do we enter into the mess of other people's lives uh, without losing ourselves? Um, because I think this is something that's come up a lot in our community uh, this year. I, we, were, we had our uh, leadership kind of vision casting workshop Friday night and Saturday morning, which was absolutely wonderful to see everyone come together and just kind of inquire of the Lord for vision for 2023. But one of the things I was reflecting on was a lot of times we think whenever there's, uh, whenever there's like a relational breakdown or, or tension in a community, we say, ah, this community must be unhealthy. I have to go somewhere where there is no relational tension, where there isn't disagreement. Um, because what we, pref we think we want unity, but we really crave uniformity. And as I've been reflecting over the past year, and I think about a lot of the, the things that many of you have had to overcome, whether it's within your community group, friendships, um, marriages, family situations, whatever it is, I see people who are willing to step into the mess 
because the mess is evidence that you no longer want to live a surface life, that you don't want to just come in here for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning and say, hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Uh, too blessed to be stressed and move on. So I think sometimes the relational tension in our lives is actually evidence that we are choosing deeper into one another and, and deeper into God. Um, and I think that that's actually the place where we are sanctified or made holy is through the tension present in community with other people. And so what I want to do today is kind of look at how um, Jesus, as fully God and fully human, lives between these two worlds. And then I want to talk about what that means for us if we're patterned after Christ, how we are called to live in that same place um, and some of the, the pitfalls that we have in that, but a deeper vision for it, but especially in the realm of listening. We're going to be talking a lot about listening today. So um, the passage that I want to look at that radiates from Galatians 6 is John chapter 1. We're going to be reading 1 through 5 uh, and then 14. So I love the way that John chooses to start his gospel. Um, you know, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar gospels in the way that they tell the story. Um, but John starts in this dramatic, different place. It's still a Christmas story in a way, which we're you know, coming towards. Um, but this is the way that he decides to shape our understanding of who Jesus is. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the idea that Jesus is God is kind of the dramatic conclusion at the end of those stories. You start with Jesus as the baby, the human, and you move towards the divine. But in John, he starts with this divine image that kind of carries us through his whole, his whole telling of the story. So it says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And when we talk about glory, what do we mean? We mean the manifest presence of God. That's what glory means. Whenever you see glory, or for you Pentecostals, Shekinah, whenever you see the Shekinah of glory of God, it means you go, where's God? Oh, there he is. In the Old Testament, it was a pillar of fire or cloud, or it was the, the kind of glowing presence of God over the Ark of the Covenant, but in the New Testament, we go, where is God? Oh, there he is, and he looks like Jesus. And our bold claim as Christians is God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. There was never a time when God did not look like Jesus, but we didn't always know that. And so whenever we talk about what God is like, we talk about what Jesus is like. And a lot of the problems that we have in the modern church today is we try to um, bump up against these descriptions of God that are big, broad things where we say, like, you know, God, the universe, whatever, like those kinds of ideas. And then we try to find a place for Jesus to sit inside of that. But I think by actually explaining the person of Jesus as the best demonstration of what God is, is like, um, it reorients our understanding that God is not this, like, kind of Greek vision of, like, uh, the immovable, unshakable, all the omnis, like kind of this ethereal God, but God has a shape. Um, God is a human being. And that's what John wants us to know right from the beginning, that the, the word was with God and the word was God. 
But the fascinating thing here, and I actually, I was thinking about using the message version of this as well, but I didn't want to give you too much heretical uh, translations of scripture at one go. Um, but there's a, there's a line in here um, that talks about um, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And I actually love the way Eugene Peterson says that. He says, um, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Uh, the word there, it, it would translate something like tabernacled, which we, you know, we all talk about tabernacling, tabernacling all the time. But what it means is, like literally, like God came among us, he moved into our neighborhood, and he pitched his tent among us. That God said, I want to be right in the middle with my people. And he pitched this, this tent of flesh. This was him embodying himself. And I've said before, one of my most, I think one of the most fascinating things about the entire biblical narrative is that in a way you see uh, God of the Old Testament de-idolizing Israel. That they're very used to idols like everybody else. God kind of looks like half a fish or God has fancy poles or God likes to uh, you know, drink the blood of animals to satisfy him. Like what Yahweh is doing in the Old Testament is de-idolizing them and saying, no, God doesn't actually have a shape like those idols and God doesn't demand sacrifices like all those other little gods. And then when they kind of come to this bigger understanding of what God is really like, then God um, reincarnates in a way, or God incarnates in Jesus. And, and now God has a shape again, but the shape has been de-idolized so we can see a God of tremendous compassion and empathy who's en- able to fully enter into our world in order to save it. And this is the interesting thing about Jesus then. It's not just on the cross, but through his entire life, Jesus is always fully God and fully human. Now, many of us probably grew up where we heard a story that something like Jesus was God, um, and then Jesus left behind heaven, so he left behind his godness, and then he became a human being. Hi, baby. She pays so much attention to me. She's a great listener. The rest of you should take notes. Um, That, you know, Jesus leaves forsakes his divinity to become a human, and then he dies, and then he kind of earns his divinity back. We see that a lot in the Greek narratives, that a god gets kicked out of being a god, they become a human, they overcome some trials, and then they get to become a god again. And that's not what we see in Jesus. It's not Jesus forsaking his divinity to become a human. It's the evidence of Jesus' divinity that he is able to become a human being. And so he never leaves behind his divinity. But everything that Jesus does is an expression of his godness. And he makes that godness known to humanity. And I think this is what's most powerful to me about this idea of Jesus hanging between two worlds at all times. Jesus knew who he was at all times, which empowered him to enter into our messy world freely and compassionately. Say what you will about Jesus, but he was a very good listener. You know that I was in a couple musicals when I was in high school? I don't think I've ever told you that. Yeah. It's not surprising? Do I, I look like that kind of guy? Do one? Um, I sang uh, Memories from Cats when I was in the fourth, well, I was in the fourth grade, so, you know, my voice was still kind of a libretto, you know, falsetto. Um, but I was in one called uh, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, and our, uh, our drama teacher, I think he always fancied himself as being someone who chooses avant-garde, but it was always coincidentally like, there's no costumes and there's no set, and then, then we realized like, oh, we have no budget. So this, 
it's a series of one-act plays that only requires like five actors, and you're like, you have like a chair, and like my brother, my little brother was like a pig in one. Uh, I don't even remember. This was 25 years ago, so I don't remember any of that. But it was called Everything I Need to Know and I Learned in Kindergarten, and it talked about some of those basic lessons that we learn that we tend to forget as we, as we grow older. And one of the things that we, we learn when we're very little, or hopefully, is we're trying to learn how to listen, how to develop empathy. And it's fascinating to look through the story of Jesus and to, and to, and to kind of pay attention to how Jesus treated other people as the divine presence, as a full and complete human being. Uh, number one, Jesus was never in a rush. You don't see Jesus running from one place to the next. You don't, he's always exactly where he means to be. And whenever these distractions come along or people are asking something of him, it's in fact, it's his disciples that are like, oh, you need to go away. He's got more, better things to do. He's really busy. You're not worthy of his presence. And Jesus always stops to pay attention to the least likely people. Um, he's always ready to listen and to explore. And when you think about the way that Jesus listens to people and you enter into some of these, these narratives, you see this very interesting way that he interacts with them, whether it's um, affirming things that they're saying, that he's astonished or astounded because of their great faith, or the questions that he asks that kind of really get to the core of what tr someone's trying to say, but they're afraid to say it. Um, you know, I think about the, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? He's like, well, you know the greatest commandments. Um, and he's like, yeah, I've done all this since I was a child. What else do I do? And then there's this little line, I think it's in Mark, and he says, Jesus looked upon him and loved him. And I love that. Like, this, what an important little thing. Like, Jesus looked upon him and loved him. And then he said, go and sell everything you have. You're like, well, that doesn't sound like love to me. But it's because Jesus was so attentive. Like, he could hear this this rich young ruler's heart. Like he knew at the core what he was really struggling with. And he's like, I'm going to say something really challenging that's going to actually be the pathway to your freedom. Like that's the thing that's going to set you free and it's going to bring you into right relationship with God. I think about the Syrophoenician woman who comes up and is demanding from Jesus a miracle. At first he's not talking to her and the disciples are kind of following suit and they're like, because they're, you know, they're racist and they're misogynist. And they're like, oh, don't pay attention to her. She's just a woman. Oh, she's a Canaanite. And she keeps demanding. And the way that Jesus interacts with her, I just, sometimes when I read it, I think Jesus has like a smirk on his face. He's just like, this woman's kind of awesome. And I want to see how far I can push her to see what she really thinks. And he's just like, oh, well, you know, it's just for, I just came for Israel, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, she, her responses are so witty and she's aggressive and trying to like really say like, no, I know who you are and I know what you're capable of. And he's like, this is amazing. Um, you see with the, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees when Jesus is arguing with them, which, you know, actually for us, we look at that again because we're so conflict averse and we think, oh my gosh, this is terrible. They're picking fights with Jesus. That was very common in their day and that's how you did public debate. I'd actually love us to recapture that ability to do it, but we're all so fragile that we can't possibly deal with anybody having a difference of opinion in our culture. Um, but the way Jesus, Jesus like listened to what the Pharisees were actually saying, you know, the words behind the words or the Sadducees. And a lot of times they'd ask him a question. He'd be like, okay, I'm going to answer your question with another question. What do you think this means? And they're like, shoot, didn't even think about that. And he would send them away frustrated. So Jesus was a really good listener, but not necessarily in the ways that we might think. Because we think good listener just means just sit there and smile and nod your head and be like, man, how many of you are or were teachers? I, I am and was a teacher. Um, and that was always one of those things where like you develop these weird little phrases 
that aren't overtly disapproving. Like I was an art teacher, so I'd be like, wow, that's really vivid. <laughs> Do you have any good ones, Katie? You're like, I like how you tried. <laughs> oh, that's good. Because well, we're afraid of telling people they're wrong, you know what I mean? And again, and I think it's tragic. But whether it was to offer comfort or it was to offer challenge, Jesus always listened so intently to the people that came across his path that he was able to speak. If he did speak at all, not always was, was he there uh, to say something, um, that he could actually call them into a deeper vision of God and of themselves. And I do think that one of the biggest problems in our day-to-day is this ideological tribalism that we have. I mean, we've talked about this a lot in our community. Um, because we're so afraid of one another, because we crave certainty, um, with the advent of the internet that's actually just made it easier to spread misinformation, it thrives on hate, all these things, blah, blah, blah. We all know this stuff. It's not new news to us. But we're so convinced that we're right that we have an absolute inability to hear the other side. We can't listen to people with whom we disagree because we've already painted a portrait of what they are and what they're like, right? Like all conservatives are obviously racist, misogynistic institutionalists. And I think my favorite slur of all time, like everyone on the left is a libtard. Oh my gosh. Because not only is it horrible when it comes to people that lean left, but it's also horrible to people with like mental disability, you know? Like we, we do this to each other all the time. And it, it's, it's just, it's, it's tragic, you know? And I think, yeah, probably over the last 20 years, it's been very easy to poke at people that lean right in their stereotypes of other people. But I see it now, I'm actually rather concerned about it, that, you know, there's a, there's a sense of classism, I think, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to conservatives. Um, that there's a, there's a significant population of this country who feel frustrated that they're being left behind and they're not being listened to. Um, that's causing them to, to, to act out. And it's not easy, like, there's this, I've been watching this, um, documentary series about January 6th and QAnon and all of this. And it's not easy to develop compassion for some of these folks. But when you begin to believe, realize like how much they've been swayed by a deep desire to belong, number one, which is a human thing, uh, a deep desire to understand or to frame the world in a particular way that keeps you safe, right? And a deep desire for power, a way that keeps us safe and keeps us in it. You know, when you begin to understand how some of this works and how people find themselves um, trapped in these ide- ideological bubbles, you begin to realize, like, my goodness, it really feels at times like we're living in two completely different countries simultaneously. And I never thought at a point in my life that I would be hearing a conversation around civil war in this country. But it becomes so much from a lack of listening. We're so convinced that we're right, that our uh, political party, our ideological view is 100% the right view, then that anybody who asks questions of some of those assumptions we're making must be demonic and must be evil because how dare you cause me to question what it is that I believe. And I think where the internet was meant to be this one grand unifying thing, it really is like the Tower of Babel, right? It was like, we'll have one language, we'll have one source of knowledge, it's gonna be great, we're gonna build this tower. It's like, it's actually done the opposite. It really has done what Babel did in Genesis. It's it's broken us up into these little tribes 
where what we seek we find. And we find these little groups that keep saying the same thing over and over again. And then when we engage with other people who don't fit into that tribal understanding of, of who we are or how the world works, um, we can't handle disagreement. We actually consider that a threat to us. Um, and I think we see that reflected in our church as our churches become more and more homogenized. And we draw more and more lines in the stand to say, this is what it means to be a Christian. And all of a sudden we have, every church now has 95 theses of like, you have to agree with us on all of these things. And I get this, you know, I've been here, what, nine years? Constantly, people want me to, um, to affirm whatever they think is the line in the sand. Um, well, yeah, it's the Nicene Creed. That was cool, and that's some good things to believe. But it's also this, and it has to be this. And we have to take a stance on this. And we have to take a position on that. And before long, we've created so many lines that the amount of people who are actually able to be part of the community is fantastically small. And we rob ourselves of the beautiful suffering that comes with, with being around people who don't agree with us. It's a good form of suffering. Like I've said, you're going to suffer in life Either way, are you choosing good kinds of suffering that actually work towards your sanctification? So existing between two worlds is an art form that we have to learn. We have to learn how to become more like Jesus. It does not come naturally to us to hang between two worlds like he does. So we're going to take a little lesson, listening test, okay? This is from Emotionally Healthy Relationships with Uncle Pete Scazzaro. You have ten, most people in here have ten fingers, correct? All right, so you're going to count on your fingers how many of these statements are true for you. We're going to see if you are a good listener, okay? All right, number one. So hold up the finger if it's true. Keep it down if it's untrue. Everybody clear? All right. Number one, my close friends would describe me as a responsive listener. Number two, when people are upset with me, I'm able to listen to them without being defensive. Number three, I listen not only to the words people say, but also the feelings behind their words and their body language. Number four, I have little interest in judging other people or quickly giving my opinion to them. Number five, I'm able to validate another person's feelings with empathy. Number six, I am aware of my defensive mechanisms in stressful conversations. For example, appeasing, ignoring, blaming, or distracting. Number seven, I am profoundly aware of how the family I was raised in has shaped my present listening style. Number eight, I ask for clarification when listening rather than filling in the blanks or making assumptions. You know what they say about those who assume? They just say you shouldn't do it. You know? I already said libtard, so I don't think I I get like one soft cuss word every week. Soft, you know, like damn. Like it's like, uh, okay, you know. It was, no, 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 that was an example. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. All right, next week, I won't get any. How's that? I'm, I'm, I'm front loading for October. Um, what are we on? Eight? Okay. Yeah, I asked for clarification. Number nine, I don't interrupt to get my point across when another is speaking. And number ten, I give people my undivided attention when they're talking to me. 
It's up to you. How generous do you want to be to yourself? Or how much do you want to lie to yourself? That's the other way of saying it. All right. So, let's see. How many of you, and be bold, like be honest. Like I, you know, I, I hope that some of us are good listeners. How many of you, uh, eight to ten statements? Okay. How many of you, you are outstanding listeners. Good job. Uh, six to seven. Okay, you are very good listeners. Great job. Four and five? All right. You are good, it says. <laughs> Three or fewer? You're very honest and humble, and you're welcome here, and you're also in trouble, is what <laughs> Uncle Pete said to us. So why are, what, what are our natural proclivities when it comes to listening? I think there's kind of two main camps. Number one, uh, sometimes we too easily lose our sense of self when we enter into another's world. So this is those of us who leave our world behind to enter into somebody else's world, but in a way that we've lost ourselves. This would be a self-erasure. And this would be if you have a lack of boundaries in your life in the name of love. That's what's so ironic about the people that tend to be here. It's because you, in some ways you probably are a profoundly empathetic person and you really, really want to show up for other people, but you completely lose yourself in somebody else's struggles. And that's what oftentimes leads to an intense amount of, uh, of burnout, depression, or anxiety. It's that you have no sense of self when you're in the midst of somebody else's mess. Um, and a lot of times this happens because you learn to tuck, your way, to, to tuck yourself away um, when you were growing up. So perhaps you had um, you know, a family of origin where there was just a lot of feelings flying around or a lot of big personalities, and you learned it's easier for me to go along with the flow and kind of give over the agenda to everybody else in order to maintain a sense of peace. So when I, certainly when I was uh, younger, and uh, way back when in my 20s, um, this would have been very much a problem that I'd have. And this is what it would usually be. I'd, I'd be sitting with somebody, um, and they'd be kind of trying to be helpful and enter into their problems, and I'd do this one. And I didn't realize that everybody thought I agreed with them, and I didn't. I think at the best, when I smile and nod at you, and this is probably still true, honestly, for those of you who meet with me one-on-one, -on -one, when I'm smiling and nodding, it probably at its best means I see you and I acknowledge that you're saying things. It, it may not mean that I actually agree with what you're saying. But what I would often do is I'd walk away from a conversation and I go, wait a minute, I don't agree with that person. Why did I say that? Like what, you know, like especially if it's like contentious debates or whatever, like it'd be, it's very easy for me to just to become some sort of social chameleon and just be whatever I need to be. I was actually talking to my, my barber last month and he's like, He's like, hey, in my job, when I'm cutting someone's hair, if they're a Democrat, I'm a Democrat. If they're a Republican, I'm a Republican. And I'm like, you're not wrong, dude. Like, I kind of I get that. Um, but the tragedy of this is in the name of empathy, you silence yourself and your own thoughts, your own opinions, and your own beliefs. Uh, and you erase yourself before long, becoming that social chameleon. So at, at the end of the day, you don't actually know who you are. And you've lost yourself along the way. And, it, and for, we, like, with, with Jesus, we never see him doing that, do we? Ne never see Jesus losing himself in somebody else's pain. 
So we actually can become um, ensnared by other people's problems. We rush in with a desire to love, with a desire to fix, to help, to heal, um, but we erase ourselves in that place. Uh, the most extreme examples, of course, being codependency. Um, but Jesus was always fully present as himself in other people's mess. So that's kind of one extreme. The other extreme is that sometimes we're too reluctant to enter into another's world with compassion because we're afraid of what it'll cost us. So for those of us that in the first category, it's self-erasure, here it's a little bit more self-preservation. If in the first category, it's being underboundaried in the name of love, this is a category of being overboundaried in the name of fear. And I think that we can be in that self-preservational mindset either passively or aggressively. When we're passive, uh, we mitigate our interactions with other people. So uh, the solution to when we're feeling stressed or overwhelmed is always to pull away. Um, we feel threatened whenever somebody expresses uh, struggles that they're having or there's an invitation for us to show up when it's inconvenient to us. For some of us, we might be ag ag aggressively self-preservational, which means, yeah, maybe we enter into somebody else's world, but with an agenda to make them think and feel the way that we do. Um, and we tend to steamroll people out of the name of self-preservation. Like, my world is so intact. Again, the first one, you destroy your world. And this one, your world is so intact that you actually steamroll another person's world with your world. Either they have to start thinking and believing and feeling the way that you do, or else they're going to get run over. And there's no place for them in you. And this is where we tend to hide behind our ideologies, um, our beliefs. We believe that makes us who we are. Like, I am defined by being a liberal. I'm defined by being a conservative. Even I'm defined being a Christian. Like, that being a Christian sometimes can be, like, the, the world that we refuse to get out of. And I think that's a lot of times where the American church, we overplay this sense of uh, persecution. Um, and we're so convinced that we're right about the way that the world works um, that we become really prescriptive to the world. Um, and we just try to make the world look more like us through coercion. Um, so we see this kind of in the modern phenomenon of Christian nationalism or dominionism, which is if we can influence power, if we can, if we can have influence in all these different places in the world, again, it's very Babylon-esque. If we can if we can influence Babylon, then we can bring the kingdom of heaven. And that's uh, basically the same thing uh, as what Jesus is calling us to. But what happens when we hide behind our ideologies? And, and again, this is another way that we do it as Christians. We only read the Bible as if we're Israel, right? We only read the Bible as if, you know, we're the disciples when they're getting it right, but not when they're getting it wrong. We don't like to read the Bible to recognize we're also Babylon. We don't like to read the Bible to recognize, oh, we are, we're the Roman Empire. Because we always want to posit ourselves as the hero of the story when we're ideologically motivated. And so we can't possibly enter into the world of Scripture to believe that perhaps we are also culpable. And I see this a lot of times in uh, broken familial relationships, for example, where the agenda is set. We can reconcile once you agree that you've done everything wrong and we're the ones that have right, and you, you cause the infringement by leaving the family or causing distance between us or whatever. 
And I think about the prodigal son, like what if the father had actually done that, right? Because that's what the son, he's, he's actually expecting that. Well, I have to apologize to my dad. I have to promise I'm going to do better. I can't be a son. I'm going to be a servant if the father said, before we reconcile, uh, I need you to give me a full list of everything that you've done wrong and how right I am, and I need you to worship me, and then maybe I'll let you back into the house, you know? And as Christians, we can be so conf- like overly confident in our beliefs and our position in history that we become prescriptive, and there's a tremendous lack of empathy there. Um, and again, I don't think that's a left thing or a right thing. I think historically, recent history, that has been a right thing, but now we're seeing it a lot on the far left where there's a a tremendous lack of empathy and dehumanization of whoever it is that we perceive is the enemy to our agenda or to our ideological bubble. And so we become reactive. Whenever you're in that self-preservational mindset, whether it's passive or aggressive, you become reactive whenever there's an invitation to step into the mess of somebody else's life. And we become very easily offended by other people's thoughts, which on paper seems ridiculous. Why would I be offended by what somebody else is thinking? Or why would I be offended by what somebody else feels? But think about some of those relational breakdowns that you've had in your own life, and I guarantee you somebody else had a thought or a feeling or they have a belief, and it offended you to where you needed to put up barriers to protect yourself. And that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus never held people at arm's length to say, no, 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 no. You know, even the, the Pharisees accused him of this. They're like, you're messing up all of your holiness juice by eating with these sinners. And he's just like, what are you talking? He's like, no, the fact that I'm holy, which means Jesus, for Jesus, like, I know exactly who I am. And that gives me full permission to enter into the mess of other people's lives, knowing it's not going to affect me in the wrong ways. The Pharisees were just like, no, 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 we're, we're morally superior to those people over there. And if you were to engage with those people, then you're compromising something of your purity. And Jesus was never in a position where he needed to do that. I don't know that Jesus was very offended by other people's thoughts or feelings or beliefs. So we have to learn how to enter into another person's world without leaving ourselves behind. That's the fine art. That's where we're called to be. So how do we do that? I think learning to listen openly is the first step to learning to love incarnationally. We have to begin by learning how to listen. So I think unhealthy togetherness has this agenda of getting someone to think and feel like we do, okay? So again, this is where we begin proselytizing, uh, where we try to convert people to our, like all, maybe our interactions are just sending them constant YouTube video clips. It's like, no, 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 if you watched this six-minute video, maybe then you would be convinced, and then you're palatable to me as an actual human being. Um, but unhealthy togetherness, we always have this agenda of getting someone to think, feel like we do. So when we listen, what do we do? We just sit and wait until they stop talking, so then we can offer them our opinion, or tell them where they're wrong or whatever, you know, it's just like, and that's the thing where maybe we jump over them, we rush them on, or whatever it might be. We don't ask any questions because we already think we know what they, what they believe. But our goal in learning to listen incarnationally is threefold. Number one, our goal in listening incarnationally is to respect individuality. That it is not our job and it is not the goal to get everybody to think and to feel and to act in exactly the same way. 
and we have to believe that other people are on their own journey. And perhaps most importantly of all, as Christians, we have to trust that the Spirit of God is at work in other people's lives. Number two, the goal is to understand what's actually being said. Part of the problem of this, this ideological, tribalistic world that we live in today is that we think we know what other people are saying because people in our tribe have told us whenever that person uses that word, what they're actually meaning is this. And so whenever that person uses that word, then it shuts down the conversation. So perhaps even today, when I say conservative or liberal, you filled in all the gaps of what you think that that means because your tribe told you, oh, those people are just this, 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 and this, and this. And, there's, and it breaks down our ability to actually have intelligent conversations. I've said it a lot of times before, like abortion. I think the, the, the brilliance and the marketing around that, when we say there's pro-choice and there's pro-life, and those are the ideological barriers that we have, those are two different conversations. One of them is about a woman's right to choose to do with her, bo like her body what she sees fit, and one of them is about the sanctity of life for the unborn. Those are two different conversations. But we're so convinced that whatever, whatever stupid little phrase we've attached our identity to is the right one, we can't possibly listen to people that are on the other side or be curious as to why they believe what they believe. What are the underlying assumptions that they're making about how the world works? Or if they're Christians, like what, what do they think this reflects about who God is? So we, we need a quest for truly understanding, which is being open-handed and curious, asking good questions that help us to enter into somebody else's world where those little stupid phrases prevent us from crossing over. And finally, true empathy. I think the goal of good listening is actual true empathy. Behind all of the disagreements, can you see a precious human being that's worthy of love? Or has your ideological tribe already determined that they're an obstacle to overcome, or that they're just a threat uh, to you and to your people. I think one of the most freeing things is recognizing that listening doesn't mean agreeing. But listening is necessary for love, because love doesn't mean agreeing either. We have to do away with this idea that in order to love me, you have to agree with me and validate everything I believe about myself or about the world. I think that's short-sighted and silly, and it doesn't serve us. But what love does is it affirms the deepest part about us, that we are children of God, that we are worthy of being loved, even when we don't believe that. And then everything else just becomes rock and roll. All these other discussions that we get to have as people as we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. I want to close with this uh, beautiful quote by the writer David Augsburger. He says, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Think about the last time that someone really genuinely listened to you. What did it feel like? What did you notice in them in the way that they were paying attention, in the way they asked questions, in the way they didn't seem to be in a rush to get through the conversation or or to get to the prescriptive moment, or whatever it might be. I think being heard is really, really close to being loved, that it's practically the same thing. So, for those of you who have a tendency to lose yourself in other people, 
how do you welcome your presence into the other person's world? How do you maintain a sense of self? Do you need to shore up your confidence in who you are, that your identity in Christ, that wherever you go, you carry the Spirit of God with you? Um, and to learn how to practice that. It's not, this is not a question of you having to be less empathetic. It's learning how to love yourself well enough to not erase yourself in the presence of another person's problems. For those of you who withhold from other people or bludgeon other people with your world, how can you train yourself to see the deepest, truest thing about everybody that you come across? That Jesus, whether it was the Pharisees the Syrophoenician woman, the rich young ruler, little children, he always was able to peer beneath the surface of their thoughts, beliefs, socioeconomic status, race, whatever. He was always able to peer beneath those things to the deepest, truest thing about them and to speak to that place in them and to call that forth. So if you withhold from other people in the name of self-preservation, if you steamroll other people in self-preservation, how can you learn the skills that help you to slow down um, and to see the deepest part of another person? And for all of us, finally, how do we capture the vision of Jesus as the great listener? Are we spending enough time with him to allow him to, to shape us, uh, to shape us to be in the spirit, to shape us to fulfill the law of Christ in how we love one another? and how we love ourselves, that we have a, love, a degree of self-awareness that we can enter freely as he did into the mess of the world, but actually have something to offer there. So I want to invite you all to stand, and we're going to come uh, to the table of the Lord together. And there's four people um, that we've asked to serve Holy Communion. I invite them to come forward. There's going to be two groups, two pairs on either side. And beginning in the front rows and moving back, you're going to come down and I love this idea of receiving communion. I had this conviction a couple of years ago that we don't take communion. We don't snatch from the table of the Lord, but it's something that is offered to us. And so when you come down, um, your friends, your spiritual family are going to look you in the eye. They're going to affirm what's deepest and truest and most beautiful about you. And they're going to offer you the body and blood of Jesus that as you take it into you, I honestly believe it makes you more like him. And that's why this is considered a sacrament, a sacred act, because it's something we do to make what's truest about us on the inside, because it's truest about Jesus, true on the outside as well. And so we're going uh, to pray together. I will lead the prayers and everything in italics are going to be your response. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to praise you, Father, for all your goodness and your love. When we turned away, you did not reject us. In Christ, you shared our life that we might live in him and he in us. On the night before he died, he came to the table with his friends and taking bread, he gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, take, eat. 
This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At the end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave thanks and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. Father, send your Holy Spirit on us now. May this bread and this wine be to us the body and blood of your dear Son. With your whole church throughout the world, we offer you the sacrifice of praise and lift our voice to join the song of heaven, forever praising you and saying, Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.